Welcome to Rewide, a podcast that brings to you cutting-edge ideas on how to create a just economy and society. We'll have conversations with policymakers and activists at the forefront of efforts to transform our society. I am Duma Bubule, an economist and financial journalist. And I'm Isabel Fry, a lawyer and social justice activist. Together, we want to provide you with information and insights so that you can have meaningful debates in your spaces and communities. In this episode, we ask the Basic Income Grant. What lessons can we learn from global pilots on costings, multipliers, and moral suasions, reducing risks by drawing on lessons already learned? Today, Isabel Fry and Duma Krobule welcome Guy Standing into our studio in this episode of Rewired. Frequently, when people talk about the basic income grant and we engage in policy discussions and debates, people who don't have great faith in the idea talk about the need to pilot. Now, pilots can be done on a national level or right down to local government level. And we've seen in the last two years or so a number of developed countries going um, and embracing the piloting, including in Finland and most recently in Scotland, uh, I believe that Berlin yesterday announced that they were interested in embracing this as well in Germany. Now, Guy, the reason that we are so keen to talk to you is that if I think about basic income piloting, you're the person that springs to mind. I think that on most continents, you've been involved with a number of pilots over the last two decades. I know that here in South Africa, our neighbor Namibia undertook two to four year pilot um, and came up with a lot of data about the benefits of basic income on a variety of levels, including social benefits and, of course, the economic multipliers. Now, for many people, the debate about basic income comes down to financing. And the question is how you define the benefits that arise from a redistribution of cash on a universal basis. So that's really what we would love to hear from you. And also the question which is so essential in, in this current situation is when people say you can't compare apples with pears. So different countries have different dynamics. And so what is the benefit of learning from pilots? So I think just to start with, if you could introduce yourself to your listeners, I think you've been involved in basic income advocacy and research longer than any of us uh, on this episode. So what keeps you so engaged despite the, the waves of, of interest and disinterest from policymakers? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to speak in this podcast. As you say, I've been involved in advocacy and research on basic income for over 30 years, and we've, we've got a global network. We've been doing pilots across the world, and I'll come to that uh, shortly. But I would like to start by recording for your listeners that I've had the privilege of having been invited to be the director of research for President Mandela's Labour Market Commission in 1995-96. And I worked very closely then with Tito Mabweni, who was then Minister of Labour. And after the end of that project, which produced a book and led to me making a formal presentation to the full cabinet in Cape Town, Tito asked me to be an economic advisor in the subsequent period. So I've, I worked then and we discussed the idea of a basic income back in 1995 
when I was proposing it, and I even suggested it might be called a freedom grant in the sense that in the wake of the overthrow of apartheid, the ANC had a, a mandate to make major reforms. And I had the great privilege of presenting my report to Nelson Mandela in his house. And he said to me that uh, winning the peace would be much harder than winning the war. And I think he's proved to be profoundly correct because what we were arguing at the time, contrary to gear, which was introduced and led by the IMF, influenced very much by IMF economists, what we said is if you go down the, that route, the grotesque inequalities that we saw had been inherited from the apartheid era, which was greater than practically anywhere in the world, would continue to grow. Mass unemployment would continue to grow. Poverty would continue to grow. Unless you introduced something like a basic income as an economic right for every citizen of the rainbow nation. And I remember that in the subsequent period, the Minister of, of Social Development, uh, Zola Skouraya, with whom I had wonderful relationships, he was very keen on a big. And of course, subsequently, uh, the Vivian Taylor committee was set up with a lot of good South African researchers who were involved in it. And I helped edit that report. I was very disappointed that A. Zola had illness problems at the time, so he couldn't be a very effective advocate. And even more disappointed that Vivian uh, left the country just before the report came out. So that was a missed opportunity. But I think it's been helped by the fact that the church and feminist groups and Black Sash and other civil society groups have continued the fight, including Kosatu, who were very committed from an early, early stage. And we had a conference in Cape Town in 2006 where Desmond Tutu gave the concluding speech where he really beautifully expressed why South Africa should have a basic income. So we're here in this pandemic slump with another opportunity. And this opportunity is almost an imperative. And I'll come to that later if we have time. But I think that the context is this. And I want to emphasize this point very, very strongly. We are learning around the world that this pandemic slump will continue and worsen unless the resilience of all of us in society is strengthened. And the resilience of all of us will depend on the resilience of the weakest groups in society. So if some groups are left vulnerable, feeling excluded and being excluded, then the pandemic will continue and the economic slump will continue and the social violence down the road will become more and more likely. I think that is the, the context in which we have to have this discussion. I've read the latest ANC report on the idea of a big. I've listened to the minister who's making very appropriate sounds. I think we have to convince Tito, now Minister of Finance, of course, that this is a unique moment and it must not be missed. And at that point, I will turn to 
some of the questions you have on the pilots, because I have been very fortunate in having been involved in designing and implementing pilot schemes. And by that, I mean, we say that everybody in a community should have a basic income. What that means is that they should receive each month a modest amount paid individually, not to a household, but individually. So paid equally to men and to women and with a lesser amount for children. And then you follow the pilot, you let them expend the money as they choose, as they wish. And you make comparisons with other similar communities who are not receiving the basic income. So you're doing an evaluation of the impact. And ideally, you have something called a randomized control trial or comparisons over time and between different groups. Now, not every pilot has followed that ideal model. But I've been involved in pilots in four continents, incredibly. I never planned that. It's happened. And we had pilots in Namibia that you mentioned. I was involved in that pilot. That was an early one. We had pilots in India, three big pilots. They're the biggest uh, pilots with covering thousands of people, very different communities. We've had pilots in Canada. We've had pilots in California. We've had the pilot in Finland which was only for the unemployed, but it had similar traits. I've also been involved in pilots in England, and there have been pilots in North Carolina and various other places listed in my books. And although the methodologies have differed across countries, across pilots, one thing is remarkable, that the basic results have been very similar across the world, in countries of different levels of development, with different types of government, and with different social structures. And fundamentally, the most important findings of these pilots is that they result improvements in health to the extent where the demands on the public health system goes down because people are healthier. It results in improvement in schooling, attendance, and in performance. It results in improvements in women's status, improvements in the status and social well-being of people with disabilities. And very importantly, if I was addressing Tito this morning, my old friend, I would say to him, the economic advantages of basic incomes have been shown across the world. And they result in people doing more work, having more energy, more entrepreneurial spirit at the lowest level, and a more ability to generate incomes and production and have multiplier effects. A multiplier effect is when the spending of a certain amount leads to the generation of more income, more taxable income which translates into a reality that the net cost of putting basic income system into practice is considerably less than the gross cost. Those people who do back-of-the-envelope calculations multiply the population by a certain amount of rands per month and say, oh, it's huge, neglect the multiplier reflex and they neglect 
the effects on social spending in other sectors because they improve the efficiency, they improve the equity of other spheres, public health, public education, sanitation, policing, and so on. And I think that it's it's extremely important for the Ministry of Finance and others who need to be convinced that they should interpret this opportunity in two respects. They should interpret this opportunity first as an emergency issue. We need a big today if we are to escape from this pandemic slump. Therefore, we need a policy of quantitative easing for people. Instead of trying to pump prime and boost the economy from this incredible slump through putting money into the financial markets, into the capital markets, they should put money into the hands of the population. And economically, that is vital because this is a demand shock. This is a shock where the aggregate demand has slumped and the capacity of people to kickstart the economy has slumped. And as long as that's the reality, the cost of lost economic output is going to accelerate, accelerate, dwarfing the cost of introducing a short-term big. But in the longer term, the tax reforms, the building of capital funds have to be taken into account separately. And perhaps Duma will be talking to me about that later, so I won't say anything more at this stage. But for me, the key lesson I want to say to the, the Minister of Social Development more than anybody else is that the evidence from around the world is overwhelmingly in your favor. Doing a basic income grant would benefit South Africa and be a fantastic legacy of what the ANC started in 1994 and would make Mandela really proud. Thanks, Guy. I hadn't realized that your historical attachment to the process of a basic income grant and its deliberations was quite so profoundly historic. The people that you mentioned, the episodes, the, the epoch of freedom, really resound in many of our memories. And I think that the way that you're able to position the benefits um, of the empirical evidence from pilots in the moment that we have now is something which is a very sobering analysis. And I, your recommendations speak of a cost of not acting that we can't actually comprehend. Duma, you were talking in recent times of the kinds of discussions around comparing different policies. Now, based on what Guy was talking about, the multiplier, the, the benefits of universal basic income, what do you think that would most compare with in terms of trying to direct a stimulus into an individual and household level that we would require for the demand shock that Guy was talking about? Um, thanks, Isabel. I just want to ask Guy one question, and without ignoring your question. Guy, when you talk basic income, people juxtapose it against a job guarantee, which is also an idea that has become very popular, I think, in the United States with the modern monetary theory economists. And in South Africa, some people have got some kind of aversion towards giving people free money. 
and they say rather give people the dignity of work. And um, what is your view on that issue? I think a job guarantee scheme sounds very good if you're sitting on the veranda having a braai or you've had a few drinks and the sound of it makes you smile. But once you start asking the awkward questions, I hope most people who have open minds would realize what a stupid idea it is. I've discussed it in detail in my new book, which came out in March, Battling Eight Giants. I go through the variants of it. If you say to somebody, I'm going to give you a guaranteed job, supposing that person turned around and say, well, I'd like to be president of South Africa. Oh, no, 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 we're not guaranteeing you that job. We're guaranteeing you the job of... Well, you have to specify what that job would be. Now, quite often, some people would say, look, I can't do that type of job. Or if I do that sort of job, it will lead to me losing my skills doing something else. Uh, or I, I'm sorry, but I'm not prepared to move or whatever. Okay. Then what happens? You've given them a guarantee. If they don't accept what the job that you choose to offer, what happens then? In practical terms, it's a form of workfare because then you would say, or the bureaucrats would say, okay, well, if you, if you refuse this guaranteed job, then you're going to lose your benefits. Because if you, if you don't do that, then why should they, I accept a job working on the roads or sitting pouring tea for a boss or whatever it might be when I can have my benefits instead? So you'd have to threaten to take it away, which is a form of workfare. And once you take that course, you go down the road and very soon you have a coercive system with sanctions and so on, just as they've got with universal credit in Britain today. It's really a silly scheme and it also has terrible substitution effects. If I guarantee a job with the minimum wage for 100 people, say, they may well be taken on by a private employer because the private employer gets free labor. And therefore, they would lead to the substitution of those people who are guaranteed a job for other people who would have been employed in any case. Well, what do you do then? You then have to say, well, we guarantee all these newly unemployed a job. And once you ask all these questions about substitution effects, about the effect on the wages, about the effect on labor mobility, it very soon becomes evident that the devil is in the detail. And I don't think a, a job guarantee is a very sensible thing to do, particularly when you think of the care economy. Millions of people are doing care work currently unpaid and unremunerated and unrecognized, but they should be remunerated and recognized. I don't want somebody who is looking after their children or their frail relatives to be forced to take a job when they would prefer to be doing that vital care work. We need to give equal status and equal remuneration to people who are doing different forms of work that are not in jobs. Let us defetishize jobs. Of course, 
we have to do jobs. They're needed in the economy. But I would prefer that people can bargain over real jobs and that the jobs generated are productive, well-paid, with good conditions, and that should only come from a sensible bargaining situation in a properly functioning labor market, not an artificial distorted situation of a job guarantee. It's It doesn't make sense. So it's a long answer, but the, if you're interested, there's an even longer analysis in, in my book. Um, in South Africa, there's the additional issue that a job guarantee would have to be implemented at the level of municipalities. And we have seen a lot of corruption in municipalities so that we don't have the capacity to implement the job guarantee at the level of local government. It was music to my ears when you talked about the financing of the basic income, because I've had people from the ANC call me and they say, please tell us how we will pay for this. In America, they call this the pay for argument. So you must work out upfront a tax or a series of taxes that will pay for it in the first year. We had a um, recently investment banker called Colin Coleman who talked about a budget neutral basic income. So what you said is that in the first years, we must use quantitative easing for the people. Can you explain why it makes no sense in the context of a country that needs a stimulus to be asking up front that every cent that we're going to spend on the basic income must be taken from a tax elsewhere. I think finance has to be understood as something different from a household budgeting perspective. How a household behaves is quite different from how a government should be behaving. We saw in the immediate aftermath of the financial crash of 2008 that governments all across the world had to start the economic system again by pumping in money through the central banks, through fiscal policy, and they pumped it in to the financial markets. More money was spent by governments and central banks in rescuing the global economic system than the whole of the world's output. It was that big. But it was done in a way that boosted inequality globally, done in a way where there were tremendous leakages to what I call rentiers, people who are living off financial property, physical property, or intellectual property. So worsening the dysfunctionality of the global economy, and it actually led to very slow economic growth. We must make sure that that is not repeated now or ever again. The IMF should be told to stay out of it. They gave the wrong advice last time. And I don't see why we should think that they'll suddenly change their spots and give the right advice this time. You use public spending to boost the private economy. Spending money with government initiatives in the context of this demand shock will actually crowd in private investment, private spending, induce activity that will boost economic development. I prefer that term rather than growth because we have problems with the old model of economic growth, depleting resources, causing global warming, etc. 
The beauty of a basic income grant system is this. The people who have the highest average propensity to consume, in other words, spend the money that they obtain, are low-income people. And the idea of a basic income grant is that you increase the spending power of all groups in society, but mainly the mass of people who are wanting to desperately survive through increasing spending on basic goods and services. And basic goods and services are precisely what will generate economic development, reduce inequality, and they have the virtue of the following economic fact. The elasticity of supply of basic goods and services is much greater than that of any other type of goods and services. And this is what you need if you're going to reboot the economy. And what we found in India in our pilots is that contrary to IMF type critics, the stimulus of demand leads to a stimulus of production because people who are producers can anticipate that there will be demand for their products. We say this all the same in Namibia, incidentally, and therefore they invest more in local goods and services. And this has one important outcome, which is that contrary to what critics say, that if you increase spending with a basic income, it would be inflationary. On the contrary, because the elasticity of supply is high, there are more goods and services provided. So in actual fact, you can often see that the unit price of basic goods and services goes down. But the profitability for the producers goes up because they're selling more goods and services. And this is precisely what you want in the context of this global pandemic, which, I, as I said before, is unique and therefore demands a unique response. And I think the lesson of the last global crisis, which was in the end of the Second World War, when William Beveridge was required to produce a report for the British government on what welfare reforms should be introduced. And he wrote this in 1942, and he was not a radical, trans, you know, not a, a revolutionary by any standard of the term. He was a pretty cautious sort of bloke. And he wrote on page two of his epoch-defining report, he said, this is a time for revolutions not patching. Now, Tito Mabweni and the ANC are far from being revolutionary, but they must understand that this moment is a time for transformative policies. Transformative in the sense that it would reverse the directions in which South Africa has been going for the last 25 years. You, Duma, mentioned very, very correctly, even I know the truth of what you said, is this deep corruption at various levels of the state. That corruption has many causes, but the idea of a transparent, equitable system of basic income would strengthen social so solidarity, increase respect for the state, increase respect for fellow commoners, fellow citizens, and actually be 
a massive move towards decorrupting the bureaucracy. Because I believe many of those in positions of responsibility are not corrupt themselves. They have witnessed the corruption and have wept tears metaphorically. But now is the opportunity and imperative to introduce big, because if it's not done, you can guarantee that there will be more social violence this time next year. And there will be more people dying of suicide, of destitution, the social illnesses that insecurity breeds. It's unnecessary. That dystopia is unnecessary. But it will require courage. The Minister Zula, I think she is showing that courage. Clearly, others are trying to rein her in, and she's already postponed the idea of introducing a basic income from October to next March or something like that. And the mirage may be being conjured up at this very instant. I hope she has the backbone to withstand the cynics. And I hope that all civil society comes united to put pressure on the government to have the courage to do this. And I feel convinced, and I have been working on this for over 30 years, and I've seen the evidence and summarized the evidence from numerous countries. I'm convinced that if that reform is made, it will be a wonderful legacy for all of those who've been in the post-1994 vanguard of turning South Africa into the rainbow nation. So for me, it's a matter of imperative now. Let's do it. One of the questions that's cropped up reference back to the, the beverage report, which as many of us know, was a transformative document that enabled the UK to emerge from the devastation of the Second World War. Now, in many policymakers' minds, there is a concern about the notion of a welfare state. And it seems that a lot of that concern is rooted in a colonial history in terms of which the role of the state has been frankly negative and has been destructive in terms of people's lives. What is posited against a welfare state is the notion of a vibrant developmental state. Now, when you were speaking about this moment, this defining moment with the capacity to be transformative, how would you speak to the fact that an underlying social security safety net can be developmental rather than being welfareist um, in the negative sense of the state acting against individual freedoms? I've argued in my books that the period in the 1940s was a period of the great transformation, the development of national welfare state capitalism. The welfare state institutions of that period were attuned reasonably in some respects, particularly in OECD countries, as suitable for that time. Today, I think. That whole welfare ethos based on laborism would be dramatically bad and would be totally inappropriate for a society such as South Africa. That doesn't mean we should rubbish the achievements, and there were good achievements, of those reforms back in the 1950s and 60s in countries like Britain, but they would be most unsuitable 
for an economy like South Africa and for a social structure that exists today in the context of globalization, a technological revolution taking place, and a need to confront the negative consequences of neoliberalism and the growth of global rentier capitalism. I think the notion of a developmental state has potential good, but also has potential risk. I think we need to associate whatever reforms we favor with the biggest giant confronting us today, which of course is the threat of extinction. The ecological threat that goes with the pandemic threat, because we're now living in a time of pandemics. This won't be the last one, and we will need a social system that gives us resilience, as I mentioned at the beginning. And it's going to be one that has to have the values of preserving nature, of reproducing nature, of supporting a balanced lifestyle in which we, as human beings, develop alongside the development and preservation of the species and the natural environment, for the sake of nature and for the sake of our children and grandchildren. And I think that one of the beauties of a basic income system, as I've argued in, in the books, is that it is an ideal instrument, not a panacea, not an all-powerful answer, but a necessary part of the answer for the threat of extinction. And here I think we've got to accept that we need eco-taxes. We need higher carbon taxes, taxation on accumulated wealth by people taking from nature. That has implications for fiscal policy, but it also has implications for how we view basic income. Carbon taxes by themselves are aggressive. They tend to increase inequality and therefore are unpopular with low-income people because their payment in eco-taxes would be a higher percentage of their income than for a rich person. And the only way to make carbon taxes politically acceptable and distributionally acceptable and economically acceptable is to recycle the revenue gained from eco-taxes in the form of eco-dividends, that is, part of the payment of a basic income system. That will turn carbon taxes into a popular instrument. I have worked in the International Labour Organization in the United Nations and currently live just outside Geneva in a village. And there, each year, there is a carbon tax, there is a wealth tax, and there are refunds paid equally to every household, which makes both of those taxes very popular with everybody, quite accepted as part of the social uh, system. Now, a basic income has the following additional advantage. It tilts the incentive to do forms of work that are not resource-depleting labor. It means that somebody who spends 50 hours doing a job, a labor, can shift to doing 
a little less, but spending more time doing unpaid care work, unpaid community work, unpaid ecological work, voluntary work, activist work, precisely the forms of work that we have seen magnified in importance during this pandemic. That should be resource-preserving activity. Isn't that what we want? It would reduce the focus on resource-depleting jobs that actually would be better to have automated in many respects. Because we enable people to work on their enthusiasms, on their creativity, on their development as people and as members of communities that can become more robust, more resilient in character. One of the beauties we saw in Namibia when we were doing the pilot is that within a few months, the fact that the basic income was being paid to everybody led to changes in social behavior, changes in reactions by people who wanted to form little committees to help run the village school, the village primary health unit, the the little roads going into and out of the villages and so on. It induces solidarity. We always talk about freedom and solidarity, but unless you have policies that induce them, don't expect miracles. A basic income wouldn't create miracles, but it would increase the tendencies of these solidaristic reactions. And what term I use, an old term that goes back almost a thousand years, commoning. It induces and encourages us to do more shared activities, more cooperative activities. And that sense of commoning is precisely what could come out of this pandemic if the governments have the courage to make transformative changes and don't become cynical and feather the nests of their friends and relations. I'm not saying that that will happen, but we could have that. One of the biggest mistakes that this government did, the mismanagement of the economy, was the management of our energy sector, the underinvestment in our energy sector. First of all, you talked about how economy doesn't operate like a household. I think you should maybe explain it a bit more because everybody wants to understand, let's say my calculation of the basic income is about 500 billion rands and for one version of it. So people will want to say, in the first year, we must tax so much to pay for the entire 500 billion. So it must be budget neutral. So number one, please explain why that doesn't make a sense in the context of a country that wants a stimulus. And the second one I wanted to ask, you talked about the gross versus the net cost. Based on your experience, a 500 billion rand basic income grant, if that is the number that we agree on, you, if you had to put your head on the block, what would be the net cost? I don't know if you have, I read something by Monica de Bol, the Brazilian conservative economist, and she came to the conclusion that a similar scheme that was introduced in uh, Brazil would have a net cost of about, I think, 60% of the gross cost. And she was taking into account additional VAT income and so forth. As it happens, Duma, I was doing a webinar presentation to Brazil, uh, a big conference yesterday. And of course, they have what's called the Bolsa Familia, which they it was introduced by, by Zula in 2004. And I happened to have the privilege in 2010 
of a private meeting with President Zula, and he realized that he'd only been re-elected president because of this basic income type scheme, and he wanted to continue to roll it out and make it completely unconditional. My advice on the costing of a big would be to start this year with a lower level than the figures that you've just given. It's not because I don't believe that it should be higher. Of course, it should be higher. But I want to make sure that the government and the Ministry of Finance in particular don't duck it on the grounds of fiscal cost. I believe that if you consolidated the COVID-19 SRD, which is paying 350 rands for 8 million people, along with the child grant and the social pension, the estimated cost would be about 160 billion addition, which is about 3% of GDP. Sounds a lot, but in actual fact, if you go for any stimulus package, it's going to come to, to more than that. This will be a more efficient method. And I believe it can be done through budget deficit. And the idea of a budget deficit is that the government is spending more than it's bringing in and it's boosting the economy as a result. Further down the line, that will generate more tax because your activity rate is increasing, production is increasing, taxable revenue is increasing. But if you look historically, governments that have actually produced better economic results for the population and for the economy and for the sustainability of the economy have run big budget deficits because that spending is a way of producing more output, more incomes, etc. You don't have to run a short-term budget surplus or a balanced budget like a household. You can actually create a, fish, a fiscal addition and worry about how you get it back later because if you don't stimulate demand this year by public spending, economic output is going to continue to plunge, taxable revenue will continue, the deficit will rise anyhow. And that, I think, is a reality that the people in the Ministry of Finance, the Reserve Bank, and elsewhere should take into account. Now, to answer the second question you articulated, when we say that the net cost is less than the gross cost, it's a great situation if you make the schooling system more efficient. You spend X billion, and if a lot of people are dropping out of school and going for second, uh, second years of, and so on, then the money is actually being wasted. You're not going to have the long-term developmental advantages. If you have a system which enables more girls, more boys to be able to stay in school and to be learning because they don't have empty bellies or they don't have uh, school equipment, etc., then you are benefiting the economy in the long run. It goes back to this point that Isabel made about a developmental state and a developmental strategy. And you have to think of the joined-up nature. 
of social policy and developmental policy. And a basic income is a necessary part of that, particularly in a time of pandemics when we're all vulnerable. None of us should kid ourselves. We're all vulnerable. And it's unfair if certain people cannot handle that vulnerability when some of us can. It doesn't make sense. It's not humanitarian and it's not developmental. So I think that the fiscal situation is not scary. On the contrary, the big question that people should be asking is, can South Africa afford not to have a basic income? And I think the answer to that is no, it cannot afford not to have it. I think the breadth of your responses certainly are stimulating a lot of uh, thinking and, and discussion for listeners to this. Last week, I was talking to President Ramaphosa, and he indicated that he'd always been interested by the idea of a basic income grant. At the beginning of 2020, he was speaking to the Prime Minister of Sweden, I believe, and he was comparing notes about some back thinking that they had on, on social policy and using this as a medium of transfer of income. He concluded our conversation by saying that he thought in South Africa right now, it really is important to be looking at innovative policies, and hence the basic income grant should be one that we look at, that we consider, that we debate. I believe you're going to be talking to decision makers in coming days, um, particularly around this. What, from your analysis, given the, the decades of, of research, the books that you've brought out, what are critical points for decision makers to be considering in this current crisis, just really by way of summation? And when you have the audience that you are going to have, what do you think are the, the sort of highlight take-home ideas that you're going to challenge decision makers with at this point? I think the conversation between the president and the prime minister of Sweden should be regarded as interesting, but not particularly relevant to the pandemic slump and what South Africa does. Sweden is a profoundly different country. I've worked there. I've written a book on the Swedish labor market, and it's a profoundly different type of structure that's taken many, many generations to build. But it's not doing very well at the moment. It's got the fastest rate of increase of inequality of any OECD country, for example. And huge numbers of people are on social assistance. That's means-tested benefits, not rights-based benefits. And of course, the number of deaths from COVID in Sweden is, is an alarmingly high number. But I love Sweden, and I don't wish to feel too critical. I'm very much hoping that they will phase in a basic income there too. I think what's relevant, and I on which I would like to conclude, is this sense of resilience that must be built. The opportunity to strengthen social solidarity in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of apartheid and Mandela becoming president was a wonderful opportunity because the forces of reaction were on the defensive. They had no credibility. And there was a window in which major structural reforms 
could have been introduced that would have generated a much better market economy, a much better model to show to the rest of Africa, for example. And I can say that I argued for that restructuring initially. Sadly, it didn't happen, and sadly, we are in a pandemic slump. But what I want to say is this. We will only get out of it if we are courageous and if we produce basic security for everybody. And that means everybody in South Africa. And it also means giving that sense of freedom that we were all talking about in the 1990s. Freedom comes from the ability to say no to oppressive relations, oppressive spouses, oppressive bureaucrats, oppressive landlords, oppressive employers. It also increases the ability to say yes. Yes, I want to do this. Yes, I want to try. Yes, I know I have basic security and therefore I will build a better life for my children and for my community. That sense of freedom is something that we all talk about. But if we're honest, successive governments have failed to give reality to freedom. It's all very well for people on their verandas who can afford fancy bries and expensive wines from Stellenbosch or wherever. But we have to realize that if South Africa is going to flourish, and it can do, then we have to have a big. I think that is the message. And I believe that this generation of politicians, particularly someone like Tito Mapweni, who was an early member of the first government of Mandela, it would be a wonderful legacy of which he would be rightfully proud. The president would be rightfully proud. And all the activists like yourselves who've been working for years tirelessly to promote it would be ecstatic and would see a reality that would be fantastic. And I think that is the message that we need to convey to the politicians today. Have strong backbones. Guy, what a privilege. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much, Guy. Nice to talk to you, Duma, and you, Isabel. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.